Welcome back. This is Robert Fleming from the Tucson, Arizona law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. In an earlier session, my partner Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman and I talked about how to make your estate plan irrevocable on the death of the first spouse to die for a married couple in order to protect against the possibility that the surviving spouse might remarry or or uh, redirect all of the funds, the couple's funds to their children from a first marriage or do something that the couple agrees they don't want to do. And we talked about how sometimes it's hard to figure out that that's, uh, that that's the right choice or the right issue to even present. But let's assume Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth, by the way, is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Uh, Elizabeth, let's assume that we've gotten past that with a client. We have agreed with them. They are insistent. We are going to do a plan that will become at least partially irrevocable at the first death. What does that mean? What does that plan look like? Well, for most people, that plan looks like a trust. And before we dive further into the topic, Robert, I'm going to pause here and say, this is the reason why we ask whether or not you have a prenuptial agreement with your spouse before we have our initial estate planning conversation. Because I'm not going to be recommending the same type of trust or terms of trust to a couple that may already have an existing prenuptial agreement. So I would say, one, the answer is a trust, but two, before we dive into that and start drafting it, we need to make sure that the spouses do not have either a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement regarding their assets and the ownership of the assets. Because once we transfer those assets into a joint trust, they become joint assets. You know, this is also why we ask to see your old estate planning documents, because a couple who are very uh, attuned to making sure that the surviving spouse can't change the, the documents might well have already signed a contract to make a will or a contract not to change a will. And they may, might not realize the significance of what they've signed. In fact, in my experience, people almost never remember that they have signed such a document when they have. So we want to look through your whole collection of estate planning documents to look for exactly those kinds of gems, your prenuptial agreement, your contract to make a will. Um, you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. That's something that we have to pay close attention to. And people sometimes think that it's frustrating and annoying that they have to empty out their file cabinets before they come and see us. But that's part of the process. That's that's part of the estate planning process. And when we're working with a couple and their goal is for the trust to become irrevocable upon the death of the first spouse, it's all about process in these discussions. I would say the two biggest points of discussion that I have with couples once we understand that they want the trust to become irrevocable upon the death of the first spouse are one, who is the trustee going to be? And two, what are the standards of distribution? It's very rare that I see a married couple come in and they agree that on the death of the first spouse, the survivor only has very limited access to resource. Generally speaking, they want comfort that the surviving spouse is going to be able to use the assets in the trust for his or her benefit, often sole benefit, for the remainder of his or her lifetime before they're distributed. So if, if, uh, if I'm going to be the trustee of the trust for my own benefit after my wife dies, and I have the discretion as trustee to invade the principal, 
well, we haven't really protected me from just taking all of the money out and spending it on my new wife, putting it into a new trust after my first wife's death. By the way, if my wife listens to this, I, I have no particular plans in mind. Uh, but uh, you're right. Who's going to be the co-trustee co with me or who is going to be the sole trustee instead of me? And whoever's the trustee, are they going to be restricted to only using the money for my medical needs or only for, uh, for particular kinds of things? Will I be able to go on a cruise after, after my spouse dies? Um, will I be able to fix up the house if the roof is, is uh, collapsing? Will I be able to have a bare bones existence or a more generous existence? And who's going to determine that? These are the really important questions that we want to have a discussion about up front before the drafting process begins. The other note that I would make here, Robert, is about trust funding. So if we're meeting with a married couple and they've decided that they want to create a trust or they want to restate their existing trust so that it becomes irrevocable upon the death of the first spouse, we also have to determine what assets are in the trust and if an asset is not yet in the trust, how to get it into the trust. Because it also often happens that when we look at this question about who is going to get what when, we have to look at the whole picture to determine what is actually held by the trust. If we don't do that up front, then the whole exercise is really um, not likely to be as successful as intended. And as you know, one of the biggest problems is often the retirement accounts. Ordinarily, and I, I don't want to overgeneralize, and please don't anybody take this as legal advice in your circumstance, because anytime a lawyer says ordinarily, that means often, I guess. It, it does not mean your case. But ordinarily, um, a retirement accounts name each spouse as the primary beneficiary of the other spouse's account. And that makes some good tax sense in most cases. But if we're trying to create a trust that becomes irrevocable on the first death, and most of your money is in retirement plans that just go to your surviving spouse on your death, well, we really haven't done very much to protect the possibility of, of the money leaving the family and going to the new spouse or the, the other children. So um, there are lots of issues about how mechanically to do this, aren't there? There are, and I think that people need to start by having a conversation, one that's open and honest, talking about it in advance of your initial appointment with us, if it's possible. It makes that first appointment far more productive when we know what your concerns are up front. In yet another session, I think we're going to talk about um, how to change trusts after they become irrevocable. That's a conversation I wouldn't have thought to have 10 years ago because it would have, the answer would have been an irrevocable trust is irrevocable. The world has changed a lot in the last decade, and we'll talk about that another time. But for now, thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, my partner, and Robert Fleming, that would be me, of Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law and estate planning firm. Join us next time, and we'll talk about modifying irrevocable trusts. Talk to you then. <music>